0: Hello, it's Biter Worldwide for the week of February 24th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Were this a real radio program, there would be commercials. Now, recently, I received a copy of the Radiosophy HD100 HD radio. But to review an HD radio receiver we really have to go back a step and take a look at HD radio overall. HD radio, hybrid digital, doesn't stand for high definition. A lot of people think it does, but HD is hybrid digital. Promises better sounding signals and more of them. But I have to wonder if that's going to save radio as we know it or as we knew it. I have mentioned before on this podcast that commercial broadcast seems to be doing a pretty good job of committing suicide, slowly. And for somebody who spent a lot of years in and around commercial radio, that is a painful thing to watch. HD radio might provide more signals, but if those signals contain nothing more than what passes for broadcast today, why bother? HD radio is actually... IBOC, I-B-O-C, in band on channel technology. It was approved by the Federal Communications Commission in 2002 for terrestrial digital broadcasting. IBOC technology was developed by Ibiquity Digital Corporation and makes it possible for stations to simulcast MP3 quality compressed digital audio along with traditional analog audio in the same frequency spectrum that they use now. There are two options. HD, which is hybrid digital, and AD, which is all digital. More than 1,200 AM and FM stations have installed HD technology. Some have removed it. More than 550 FM stations offer multicast channels, which doubles or triples the number of signals available. If you go to the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, you'll see a listing of stations in and around central Ohio. And you'll see that here, as with other markets, most of the stations that have converted are FM. AM stations have been slower to adopt the technology. There are, in fact, some technical problems with HD in the AM band, and there's a growing number of radio engineers who oppose having HD in the AM band. In hybrid mode, the HD signal is just a tiny fraction of the station's analog signal, 10%. Because of this, the HD signal can become so weak that the receiver reverts to analog mode. For example, most of the time when I attempt to listen to WOSU's second HD channel, that signal can drop out, and because there is no analog backup for the channel, the radio plays the primary channel's analog signal. Although this behavior does exactly what the HD specification says it should, it's annoying because it has the effect of having the channel effectively change at random times. But let's go back a few years. Well, more than a few years. Sometimes I recall my days at a small radio station in eastern Ohio. WOMP was in the Bel Air wheeling market. At the time, we had more hours of news on the air than any other station in the state of Ohio. Two and a half hours in the morning and between 30 and 90 minutes in the afternoon. It was a daytime station, so the sign-off times sometimes cut into the news block. Now, in those days, we listened to WTVN and we talked about how much we wished we could sound like the Friendly Giant. That was their nickname in those days. Well, 30 years later, WOMP's employees got their wish, but not exactly the way we hoped. WTVN is still on the air. WOMP is still on the air. Much of the time, they sound exactly the same, because they're running the same satellite-based programs. WTVN has more local programming than a lot of stations these days. Clear Channel has apparently realized that local programming is helpful, It now has real, live, local talent on the air from 5 a.m. until noon, and again from 3 p.m. until 7 p.m. But stations in medium and small markets have virtually none. If I have the choice of listening to satellite programming on local radio or listening to satellite signals direct, I'll take the direct route. That's why XM and Sirius are growing. Terrestrial Radio's answer to XM and Sirius is HD. And for the past several months, I've been listening on and off to the Radiosophy HD100 set. It's a nice enough radio, but my choices are somewhat limited. Ubiquity provided a list of stations in the Columbus market. Here's what's on the list. 610 WTVN, supposedly broadcasting in HD. Can't hear it. 820 WOSU AM, supposedly broadcasting in HD. Can't hear it. 12.30 WYTS. Can't hear that one either. That's all there is for AM. Over on the FM side, we have WXMG with oldies. I don't believe I've heard that one. WOSU with two channels, Classical and News Talk on the alternate channel. That has been largely unreliable, but it seems to be improving a bit. More about that in just a little bit. Sunny, WSNY, has only a single HD channel. WCLT has three signals, Country on HD1, News Talk on HD2, and News Talk Sports on HD3. WCKX has a single channel, Urban. Uh, sorry, don't do rap. WNKK has two channels running, Rock and 90s Alternative. There's WBWR with Rock, and WBWR HD2 with Full Metal Racket. Nope, think I'm interested there. WNCI runs two signals on HD. HD1 is the regular broadcast. HD2 is Stevie's Boom Room. WLVQ, currently analog, but planning to install HD. And then they will have a second channel of Deep Rock tracks. Here's one I would actually listen to if I could. WJZA, Smooth Jazz. Bad Signal. W-O-D-B, might listen to them, oldies, but bad signal. hd H-D-1 and H-D-2, country and new country. And then there's W-H-O-K, currently in analog with country, and they'll soon be adding H-D-2 with Christian country. Well, I'd listen to the jazz station if the signal was good enough. I'd listen to classical if that signal was good enough. But I'm not at all interested in Rush Limbaugh, rap, full metal racket, or 80s disco music. And the ubiquity list is a little out of date. It lists the 1230 signal as progressive talk, but it has morphed to regressive talk, talk that's even further to the right uh, than WTVN is. Where's all this liberal media I keep hearing about? One station's alternative signals is 80s disco. wonder how that's working out for them. So while the radiosophy HD100 works just fine, it doesn't provide any signals that I'm ready, willing, or able to listen to. Now, some of the problems might be signal strength. I talked with Jim Airy. He used to be WTVN's chief engineer, now fills that function for the WOSU stations. He reminded me that the HD signals have just one-tenth the power of analog signals. That's why WOSU-FM's signal, delivered from a transmitter on the south side, doesn't reliably reach my north side home. Jim suggested that what I really needed was an outdoor antenna. So HD does provide more signals, maybe, when I can hear them, but the signals contain much of the same stuff that I don't listen to anyway. And they contain 20 to 30 minutes worth of commercials, traffic, weather, and other blather that I really don't care about. Traffic reports are invariably at least 10 to 15 minutes behind what I need to know, so why bother with those? If I want weather information, I can get it from the National Weather Service broadcast or online. I'd rather pay $10 a month for 100 non-commercial stations on XM, of which I maybe listen to about five, than to spend 10 to 15 minutes every hour listening to the same repetitive, badly produced commercials that are hawking mortgage lenders, pills for diseases I don't have, and other questionable products or services. Radio has a chance to make a difference with those alternative channels, but I can predict with fairly good certainty that programs on those alternate channels will be just more of the same and piled higher. Today, listeners have more options than we've ever had before. I previously mentioned Satellite, XM, and Sirius. Those signals are readily available and largely free of commercials, although you do have to pay a monthly fee. There are podcasts by the thousands, Streaming audio, CDs, MP3s, services such as Pandora. And for news organizations such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and most other major newspapers have realized that the Dead Trees version of their product won't last another generation, and they are trying to morph into 24-7 news operations. And then there are the top-flight news operations, such as the BBC, that make their world service available online. Given those resources... Why should I try to depend on an understaffed and overworked local news operation? Ibiquity says that 90% of Americans are within the reach of at least one IBOC signal these days. If you look at a map of the United States, you'll see large areas that are not covered, mainly in the West, in areas where there aren't very many people. I found an interesting article in the February 1st issue of Radio World. That's a magazine mainly for commercial radio engineers. Contributing editor Skip Pizzi wrote about the state of HD following the just-concluded Consumer Electronics Show. He noted small but steady improvements in the number of products being issued, but he also pointed out several critical issues the industry is going to have to deal with. A small but very vocal group of AM station operators who plan not to adopt IBOC have filed enough complaints with the FCC citing increased in-band noise from IBOC stations that some of the early adopters are pulling the plug on their HD operations. Many of the AM stations that have iBok installed turn it off at night because of the way AM radio waves propagate during darkness. HD is moving very slowly. Pizzi says the concurrent development of other media devices and services only deepens the gloom. He specifically cites streaming media and wireless broadband services. And then there's the potential for increased music licensing fees as radio stations transmit digital selections. The music industry hasn't sought fee increases from analog-only operations, but this is likely to change with IBOC. Forty years ago, owning a radio station was a bit like owning a press that printed money. That is no longer true And the industry has already had to degrade services to remain profitable. It doesn't need another big expense, but it's likely to get one. Bottom line on the radio, that's a nice radio, good price, the HD100. Sells for about $100. It has 5 AM presets, but I can't hear any AM stations on that radio. And 5 FM presets. 10 would actually be welcome. My primary question, though, is whether broadcasters will provide signals worth listening to, or whether we'll just have to listen to their final death throes. Well, either way, the HD100 will give you a front-row seat. And the bottom line on HD radio service itself, it's a service that may be fatally flawed, particularly on the AM side. The available signals, both in terms of selection and listenability, still nowhere near what's going to be required if HD radio is going to become a success Despite Ubiquiti's talk about how fast HD is being accepted, radio stations, particularly AMs, are slow to adopt the technology, most consumers have never heard of it, and some AM operators have stopped using HD. The people who write phishing emails are getting more clever. In cryptography, a man-in-the-middle attack is a ruse in which an attacker is able to read insert, and modify messages between two parties without either party knowing that the link between them has been compromised. The attacker must be able to observe and intercept messages going between the two victims. The man-in-the-middle attack can work against public key cryptography and is also particularly applicable to the original Diffie-Hellman key exchange protocol when used without authentication. What the heck did he just say? Well, that was kind of an intro in Technobabble, to uh, this, this week's Stupid Spam of the Week, the latest approach being taken by phishing attempts. Let's take a look at how this works. In this case, it begins with a message that comes from PayPy. That's P-A-Y-P-A-I, with a capital I, not PayPal. While it claimed to come from SecureSiteNet, all of that was enough of a clue to tell me that it was a fake write-off. PayPal always spells its name right. So I cautiously opened the message and found a lot of instances of the spelling PayPal and, of course, the requisite link. Where does it go? Well, not to the PayPal site. It goes to a website in France. So I decided to use Sam Spade to see what the site would like to serve me. By the time I got there, the bogus content had been removed. It was on a French site for the open source Joomla product. To their credit, the site's operators noticed the problem promptly and remove the bogus content probably before it could do very much harm. This might have been one of those man-in-the-middle tricks, and here's how this works. The victim visits the site, the site appears legitimate, and the user logs in. This isn't one where they start asking you immediately for information that you know you shouldn't give them. It appears to be the real site. It displays the original login and password. You enter those. The rogue site then sends your username and your password to PayPal. Now, assuming the victim provided an accurate username and password, the login is successful. At this point, the man in the middle, the rogue site, accesses the user's profile page. Well, that page includes phone number information and other bits of information. The site feeds that information back to the victim. Now the victim knows he's on the right site except he isn't. At this point, the rogue site begins to request additional information so that the user can prove his identity. Thinking the site is legitimate, the victim provides that requested information. Identity stolen. To eliminate this kind of ruse, it is important never to click on a link provided by an email that claims to be from a financial institution. You should have bookmarks for the financial institutions that you patronize. Use those instead of links in emails. And sadly, even that isn't 100% certain. If your computer has been otherwise compromised, you could still be redirected to a bogus site, even if you type in the appropriate URL. It's getting dangerous out there. I recently responded to a question about buying a computer to be used by someone who works for a trust company in Los Angeles. There were several requirements that made this specification interesting. First of all, the user wanted no proprietary components. The computer needed to be able to store and play music, work with photographs, be in the $1,500 to $2,000 price range, have the ability to exchange Word and Excel files with the Office system, which runs Windows, Have an external drive for backups, and this is a computer that's in Los Angeles, so the user wanted to be able to grab that backup drive and go in an emergency and have usable files. And the final point, wanted to have tech help available for several years. Well, requirement number one seems to eliminate all Apple computers and all notebook computers because all of those devices do have proprietary components. But we'll come back to that. Based on requirement number six, that's the one where we're going to have an external hard drive for backups that can be grabbed and taken in an emergency. I'm going to assume it's a desktop computer. And at that point, I began to wonder just how important requirement number one is. Now, as much as I enjoy the wide variety of peripherals that are available for Windows machines, Apple's solution might be worth paying a premium for. If you want to perform a specific task with an Apple computer, Apple will have a solution. A solution. One. You'll probably pay more for it, but it's pretty much guaranteed to work first time. You can get an iMac, that's the computer that's actually in the monitor, for as little as $1,200, but that computer is going to have only one gigabyte of RAM, so figure at least 1,500 plus whatever software you need. And keep in mind that all current Macs run on Intel processors, and these can be set up so that they will be dual boot machines, so you can start either OS 10 or Windows. If the need to share documents is limited to Word and Excel, essentially the Office suite, then Windows wouldn't even be necessary. The Mac version of Word and Excel work just fine. So that covers requirement five, the ability to exchange Word and Excel files with the office system, and it fits within the price range. Any computer these days is going to be able to store and play music and work with photographs, essentially non-requirements there. To be assured of technical assistance for years to come, you're going to need to stick with HP, Apple, Dell, or Lenovo, and you'll probably need to purchase an extended warranty. My preference, if I'm dealing with a Windows machine, is to deal with a local company, such as TCR, because most of their computers come with a three-year warranty. I would presume that Los Angeles has at least one computer builder as talented as TCR, but then again, I don't know the L.A. market. So that leaves requirement six, the external hard drive for backups, grab and go in case of an emergency. I spend a fair amount of time talking about backup, and you probably already know that If you have a backup device that's in the same room as the computer, as far as I'm concerned, you don't have a backup. If a fire or earthquake destroys the computer, it's going to destroy the backup. In this case, where grab-and-go is going to be desirable, you might want to have two external drives. One of the drives would always be at the office, while the other would always be at home, The drives would be swapped daily. You take drive A to work in the morning, bring home drive B at night, use it to back up the critical data that evening, and return it to work in the morning. In this situation, because the intent is to have a device that contains all current work in an immediately usable format, I would use an application such as Beyond Compare, which is a Windows-only application, instead of the standard backup-type program. This is similar to the process I use at home. In addition to several overlapping backups, I have an external backup device that sits beside the computer. So should something go wrong with the desktop unit, I can simply unplug that backup drive, plug it into any computer that has the appropriate software, and get back to work. Earlier this year, when the desktop experienced some serious problems, it took less than a minute for me to start a notebook computer, plug in the USB drive, and continue working. This kind of solution would also be available for the Mac, possibly via time machine or by using rsync on the command line. Somebody actually has a graphical interface for rsync, and rsync is open source, so it's going to be free. But there was one more consideration. This user works for a trust company, and requirements of the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act will certainly come into play. GLB is a law that deals with how customers' private information is safeguarded. Carrying drives with unencrypted data between home and office certainly does not comply with that act, nor would leaving the data unencrypted on a home computer. Uh, Trust Company's IT department probably has some guidelines for safeguarding data that leaves the building, so it would be important to check with them before making any decisions. In nerdly news, goodbye, HD-DVD. Last week, I said, and I quote, There are two high-definition formats for DVDs, HD DVD and Blu-ray, or were. Blu-ray has won the battle. Walmart has announced that it will drop HD DVD gear in favor of Blu-ray. End of story. End of quote. Well, I wasn't expecting to be able to follow up quite as soon with a story that says, There is one high-definition format for DVDs. If you've been waiting for the final shot, it has been fired. Instead of a bang, though, it was more like a whimper. Toshiba was simply outflanked by Sony. Sony didn't want another embarrassing fiasco, such as the Betamax problem of some time ago. Sony opted to go with the more expensive blue lasers, but the DVD forum led by Toshiba selected a less expensive option. Early Blu-ray discs were also fragile and required protective caddies. Gee, remember the early CDs? By early 2002, the DVD forum had approved a system that compressed HD content onto the dual-layer DVD 9 discs. That's the technology that became HD DVD in 2003. It wasn't until 2006 that Toshiba released the first HD DVD player in Japan. It cost nearly $1,000. Remember those $500 CD players in the early days? Well, Blu-ray followed with a player a few months later, and by the time HD DVD players came to the United States, the price had dropped to as little as $500. Then Warner Brothers said it would stop supporting the HD DVD format by the middle of 2008. Netflix opted to go only with Blu-ray, but the real killer had to be Walmart's decision to support Blu-ray and drop HD DVD. You can still find HD DVD players in retail stores, and Toshiba says it will provide spare parts for at least eight years. Earlier I mentioned phishing. When you think about phishing, you probably think about Chase, Citibank, American Express, eBay, the big guys. But the creeps who run these scams really aren't stupid. They know areas served by local banks, and for at least the past year they've been mixing fraudulent messages that claim to come from these smaller banks, in with those that say they come from the giant banks. In many cases, they can also identify where a potential victim lives. So when you receive a phishing message, it may well come from a bank in your area. These messages can be pretty effective. This week I received a message from Jeff Gehringer, who described a phishing email claimed to be from Greenville Federal in Greenville, Ohio. Not having an account with them, I thought it odd that my services would be deactivated and deleted if I didn't respond, Jeff wrote. I called Greenville Federal to report this, and they said that they have been receiving calls from all over about it. It goes to show that it's not always the other guys this happens to. And indeed it's not. As usual, the bait looks more or less legitimate and contains a warning. This is your official notification from Greenville Federal that the services listed below will be deactivated and deleted, if not updated immediately. Previous notifications have been sent to the billing contact assigned to this account. As the primary contact, you must update the services listed below, or it will be deactivated and deleted. The service listed is Greenville Federal Billpayer, and the expiration date listed is just a couple of days in the future, to add a sense of urgency. The domain link that you're supposed to click takes you several levels deep on a server owned by a company in Victoria, British Columbia. Now, chances are that a small bank in a rural Ohio town is not going to be running its operations from a server in Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. So, the standard rules apply here. Never click a link in a message that claims to be from your financial institution, Type the URL yourself or use a bookmark to ensure that you go to the right site. And never give any site any information that they should already have. Account number, security questions, things like that. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of February 24th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.